Well, hello and welcome to Eastlake Online. Not to make this really confusing, but we're filming this on a Monday because yesterday we tried to do a live stream and maybe some of you tuned in. And after about 30 seconds of the choppy video, you thought, my internet must be broken. And it wasn't. It was our internet. We got a little email from Charter in the afternoon letting us know, unfortunately, uh, that our internet was going to be down. But don't worry, it's just a Sunday, so we'll have it up and running by business hours on Monday. Unfortunately, they do not know our business hours. Anyways, uh, so we are here. I'm filming this to an, an entirely empty uh, room theater. Uh, and the, the message, it wasn't that it was like so good I had to re-record it. I just thought, if for those of you who take the time uh, during the week to kind of, uh, you know, get in on this or record this or watch this on replay, I didn't want you to miss out on part of the series, and I didn't want to go into part three uh, making assumptions that were only um, known to the 20 or 30 people who are here uh, attending it and watching it live. So thank you for watching it midweek, wherever you're watching this, um, and uh, I'm excited to continue the series today. But before we do that, two days ago... Uh, was Saturday the 10th of October. And uh, what that date signifies is our 10-year birthday as a church. Um, 10 years ago on Saturday, from last Saturday, we uh, met at Southridge High School for the very first time, opened up our doors, did some monthly services, October, November, December, and started meeting weekly in January of 2011. But really the first time some of you saw our faces or the first time we actually pulled a van up or a truck up and, and unloaded and set things up and tore things down in the school was that. And uh, so this week, we, my wife and I, we were away um, for a, like a getaway with pastors and a couple of masks, are you going to do like cookies or cake or celebrate? cupcakes or anything like that. And we're like, no, we can't, we can't give away anything. We can't do anything for this. So we're celebrating from home with you. So whatever cupcakes you have in your cupboard or whatever, go ahead and bake one of those and and celebrate with us. Uh, But my wife did come up with things that didn't exist 10 years ago uh, that we kind of take, you know, um, don't take notice of now, or, or we just assume that they've, it just feels like they've always been here, right? Because Eastlake kind of feels like it's always been here too. But 10 years ago, it didn't exist and neither did these things. So 10 years ago yesterday, nobody was asking Alexa for anything unless you had a sister named Alexa. Um, 10 years ago yesterday, Tinder was just stuff you put in a fire. Um, 10 years ago yesterday, there were no filters for Instagram because there was no Instagram. 10 years ago today, uh, or yesterday, or Saturday, whatever, um, Airbnb was less than a year old and only brave slash crazy people tried it. Um, 10 years ago on Saturday, nobody knew their Enneagram number. And 10 years ago, Saturday, about 40 people showed up at 6.30 in the morning uh, at Southridge High School and began setting up, wondering, wondering if there could be a church option for people who don't typically like church. Uh, many of the people who are there are still a part of Eastlake or, or friends or whatever. Um, and I remember meeting in the living room with them and being just dissatisfied with the current offerings uh, about what church was about. They seemed to prioritize place too much priority on things that didn't mean enough and then perhaps not enough priority on the things that actually were meaningful and what if we could do church a different sort of way. And that sort of wonder um, bred into this idea of uh, a church for people who don't typically like church. And wonder operates in that way. We said this at the beginning of the series. The series has been about wonder. It's a series called Through the Looking Glass, which was the original title of the book, Alice in Wonderland, um, uh, from Lewis Carroll. And, and so this idea of that book is full of wonder. It's, it's a fantastic read, fantastic movie. Um, what about wonder for us? When we look at the, the world as it exists and we go outside and look up at a starry night, the other night we were outside looking up at the sky and uh, somebody had their, their iPad out there and they did that whole... Um, 
astrology, not astrology. What's the, what's the, what's the term that I'm looking for? I can't even think of it right now. I know there's nobody here to help me out anyways. Um, where there's constellations in the sky, that, that thing, whatever that is, they held it up to the sky and they said, there's Mars. And you could look and you could see Mars. And it was just like, there it is, like a planet that you just never even get to see. It was brighter than the, the, the normal star. And it was just amazing. Like that sense of wonder looking out and being like, what if someday we colonize that place? What if someday, like we send people there? That's insane. That sort of wonder always breeds creativity, right? Um, a lot of inventions in our history, especially in American history, have come through wonder. I wonder if this would work. We have a frame of reference by which we understand kind of how the world works. And then every once in a while, we get asked the question or come or our face of the thing that something is approached outside of the box. We can't currently do this, but wouldn't it be cool if we could? Um, the whole adaption of, of electric cars uh, has been something that's like, that's really cool, but how could this thing work? And you have companies like Tesla and everybody else trying to figure out. They operate with a sense of wonder that, that we don't currently have a battery that works in this way, but what if we could create it? Wonder shapes reality. We live fully in a world of wonder and we wonder because our frame of reference does not provide us with all the answers. If, if, if something is already answered by our current perspective and our current understanding, there's no wonder there. We just you know, operate as if we know the answer to this. Um, and this is not exclusive to the realm of technology. This shows up in scripture and in, in terms of uh, what does religion look like for us and, and ethics as it kind of is inspired by religion and what we believe and how we operate and how we behave and what we consider to be important and what we consider to be moral. We have, we, we, like I said, we, we said in week one, you grow up with a frame of reference. Oftentimes you adopt it from your parents and then it kind of evolves and, and, and adapts as, as you kind of go along. But um, we, we have a perspective of how things are supposed to work and what is right and what is wrong. And then every once in a while, something comes out of the blue and we're going, we, we're introduced to this, this person who challenges our faith or a, or, or a, a professor at college or whatever that says, oh, have you thought about this? Or, or just life experience in general. Like, you know, somebody goes, these things are happening. Why are all these bad things happening to me? If, if there is a good God who exists, then why this? And there's been all kinds of explanations for why that is. And, and there's these things called theodicies, which are basically an explanation of why evil can exist in a world that is created by a good God. So this concept of it invading into the world of ethics and religion is, is not very new. And, and wonder exists in this. But, and perhaps, though, you grew up in an environment that, uh, that kind of restricted wonder. Like, we don't ask too many questions. Like, um, don't worry about it. We've got these things solved. Don't worry. Everything can be figured out if you'll just spend more time here or more time listening to me, a guy like me, or um, just attend church more. Or I don't know. Whatever answer it was, oftentimes uh, in, in religious environments, wonder has been perceived to be kind of dangerous because what we've seen a lot of times is stories of people who wonder and then they wander, right? They wonder for a while, they have questions, those questions don't get good enough answers, uh, and then they begin to kind of wander and do their own thing. Then they have kids and they come back to church and blah, blah, blah. That's how it all goes. But um, there's a sense in which the perception has been that the church is against wonder. And I I just think that that's incorrect. I think that... um, what we've seen in history is people who have been inspired by a God who creates um, to then go and discover the wonder of his creation. We already believe in a God who could do this kind of stuff and that inspires our ability to kind of go and discern why gravity operates the way that it does, uh, why the molecular structure of certain things operate in the way that they do. Anyways, 
And when it comes down to it centrally, when it comes down to like the central focus of religion, um, we believe that yes, we can wonder um, uh, about stuff. And that, that is part and parcel of being human and discovering the world that we have found ourselves in. Uh, but God sent somebody, this is the ultimate claim of Christianity. God sent somebody to stand on our side of the frame to serve as a point of reference. And the audacious claim is that we could know with certainty or with a certain level of certainty what God is like. And it's not a, a, a thing. It's not a, it's, it comes in the form of a person. And this is important because um, what we find, like we said in week one of this series, is that um, we're not the only ones who find ourselves wandering, wandering, wandering and wandering out of religion. Um, the book of Hebrews is almost like this sermon that was written to a group of people who were trying to discover they're coming out of Judaism. They've been presented with the story of Jesus. Uh, they've, they've seen his teachings and his way of doing things. And they're like, we need to incorporate this somehow, but we just don't know how. And they begin to find themselves wavering in the faith and trying to figure out what do we keep what do we discard? What do we move on from? Um, and in Hebrews, there's this author. We don't know if, who it was. It wasn't assigned to anybody. We, we're pretty sure it's not Paul. But anyways, who writes this almost like sermon helping to direct these people. And one of the biggest points of it is the centrality of focus on the person of Jesus. Like, I don't care where you want or what you do, but you need to have some sort of a, a sense of a terra firma or firm ground firm terrain by which to kind of go off from. We've seen those movies like The Matrix or Inception where the dream world gets so um, complex that you know this, a sense of reality is lost and we don't even know what's, what's true anymore. Um, in this same way, this author of Hebrews goes, there's going to be life, there's going to be so much wonder in life, but here's the one thing we can definitely fix our eyes on, as he would say in chapter 12, verse 2, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, or the author and perfecter of our faith, or the beginning and the end of faith. It is safe to wonder as long as you're grounded in some sort of reality. And he would say, or this author would say, it, it comes in the person of Jesus. Christianity begins and ends with the person. Now, um, as a pastor, I get a chance to oftentimes hear about deconversion stories. Um, these are people who, for whatever reason, wandered away from the faith and they, they find themselves going, I'm not really a church person anymore. I'm not even sure what I believe or whatever. Um, I love hearing these stories um, because what happens is they get to this spot where they, they realize or they say in their own words, I just found myself in a spot where I just, I had to leave. I, for, 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 they asked me to kind of check my brain at the door or I had all these questions about wonder and I just, I found myself needing to just get out of that situation. And sometimes it's justifiable. And sometimes I wonder if you wandered away aimlessly or, or needlessly or whatever. Or other people, maybe you're watching this and like you're the proverbial, I have one hand on the door. This is the last chance. Like I've kind of given up on church. And then I hear about like a church that's not really for church people. And that's kind of my category. And so I'm giving it kind of one last thing, but don't say too much because the hand's on the door to be able to leave. I get it. I understand. When I hear these stories of deconversion though, oftentimes I find myself going, I just... I wonder if you're leaving for something as peripheral as like internal politics. Like I know I've talked to people who go, I just got involved in a church. I was on a, on a, a serve team. Um, I, I got to see kind of behind the scenes of how the internal politics of an organization work. And I thought, I just thought that churches would be exempt from people trying to like step on other people to kind of get in positions of power and authority. And I just thought abused and it just makes me, ugh. And it's true, man, people are involved in this. Like internal politics has killed many church or perhaps, I mean, we're coming into election season, external politics, all of a sudden the 
you know, the, uh, the partisan side of identifying with one political party or one political issue or whatever became so much and you felt so excluded. And it's like, how could you see this? How could you see this differently than me or whatever? Or perhaps it was the hypocrisy. You walked away from church because people are hypocrites. Like they're saying this one thing and then I see him doing something else. And I'm just like, man, that's just people, man. That's like, how do you survive on social media? I mean, I, I don't understand. Like the hypocrisy is a part of just human nature. So I get that you would want to walk away from a church, but I, you just walk away from life altogether. You're, you're obviously staying in some things. There's hypocrisy probably in your workplace too. But, or maybe it was rules. Maybe it was like a, a church, an organization had so many different rules that kind of defined what was in and what was out and what was kosher, but what was not kosher or, or good, but not right or whatever. Anyways, and you left because the rules were kind of just like overwhelming in that way. I, I get it. I understand uh, why that you would leave. Or perhaps it was as simple as hurt feelings. And it's embarrassing to almost admit that you left because your feelings got hurt. But like, that's a real thing. Like, I don't want to downplay that. Like, I get it. Somebody said something to you. Somebody shamed you in some way. Somebody um, was, was uh, like, maybe, you know, and who knows what kind of day they had or whatever. And you can kind of make these games for it. But when it comes down to it, you left and you walked away um, because your feelings got hurt in some way. And and so now we find ourselves in this position or people in these scenarios specifically find themselves in a position where they say, but now, right? But now I've got this all figured out. But now I know. Now I can see clearly. Now I can see why, you know, where things went wrong or whatever. And in those moments, uh, perhaps I was, you know, biased in, in terms of some things, but my, my reference point now is so clear. And it's interesting because even then we see other people who are making poor decisions with their life and we think, well, you know, they're, they're clearly biased in some certain way. They're clearly, you know, uh, they have something going on. There's a history there that shapes them. We think we are exempt from it. This is the, our uh, hypocrisy at our own level. We think it's okay for me to wander away from the faith and to be uh, like taken aback by the lack of wonder within church or religion um, because I have so much clarity in my life now um, and not feel like we're affected by bias, even though we see other people and we go, they're clearly affected by bias. They're clearly affected. And we even like do it with um, some sort of generosity towards um, even like maybe our divorced parents who we could never understand their divorce when they were 16, when we were 16 and, and they're telling us a story and we're just like, whatever, like you're just a jerk. And then later on you hear the stories of both sides as they come out and, and you go, I kind of get like, we're all operating with some sort of a perspective, some sort of a, a barrier to even our own uh, reality. Um, and so perhaps that's in play. Perhaps my, uh, perhaps when I walked away from the faith, because my frame of reference couldn't make sense of this new thing. And I was not encouraged to wonder why that existed. It was either believe it or get out. Um, and then, so I just said, fine, I'll get out. Maybe, maybe that's limited. Maybe, I was, maybe that's not the right thing. Maybe I'm saying no unnecessarily to this sort of thing. This sort of limited frame of reference shows up in scripture. Um, this is not an American problem. This is not a, 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 like a 21st century problem. Uh, this is from the very beginning, what we see over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament are people who believe, um, who, who have this like perception of if you're sick, it's because of something that you did. If you're healthy, it's because of how blessed you are. Um, when their children fall sick, they wonder, what, what did we do? Is, this, is it this 
man who sinned or was it his parents who sinned or this child who sinned or whatever, like all of these weird limited perspectives that we see um, can cause us, and they're hurting. They're like trying to make sense of this. Like, but our, our perspective is so broken. We're not even sure where reality lies in this. And so the beauty of Christianity, the point of all of this through this looking glass is yes, we are all looking through this glass and we are all shaped by all kinds of different things. But Hebrews reminds us and scripture remind us, reminds us that the story of Christianity is that there has been a reference point that has been made known to us and for us, that God made, sent his son to come on our side of the frame to help us to see clearly at least what he's like and what this life is best lived out as. And so that is the takeaway. God sent someone to stand on our side of the frame to serve as a point of reference for us. So I want to build my case uh, for that today because I know there's some perspective of um, that sounds good and, it, and, and when you say um, that person or that new frame of reference or that new perspective comes through Jesus. Like Jesus is a very um, safe thing um, in, in terms of nobody's like anti-Jesus. It's, very, it's really weird to be anti-Jesus. Um, he seems to stand for all the things that we care about. And even from like American politics, both sides claim him. And so um, it, it's not, uh, it's, it, it's it, there could be an argument that um, Brent, you're just kind of making this up to kind of fit something. Like, is this an actual, was this an actual perspective that is represented in scripture? Or is this a narrative that you tell yourself after the fact to justify this? Uh, in other words, um, like last night, the Seahawks won in like crazy fashion against the uh, Minnesota Vikings. And you probably had some friend that said, I told you so, I told you they'd win. You know, I told you Russell Wilson's the best, anything like that. Of course you believe that now. We always believe after the fact, this is how it always worked. I always knew Russell would come back and score a game-winning drive to DK Metcalf and the touchdown, you know, whatever. But in that moment, you, you, you didn't. You, you, I sat on the edge of my seat just like you sat on the edge of your seat. I hoped, I wanted it to work out. And yeah, great that it eventually did, but was that the game plan from the very beginning? And the argument here is that um, this has been a part, this idea of Jesus being the new perspective or that Christianity saying the new frame of reference comes to the person of Jesus is not that it was something that was created after Jesus was gone. It wasn't something that was created by the church to kind of keep this thing going. And it's definitely not Brent sitting in front of a camera needing something to talk about. And so saying, this is important. You should like listen to Jesus. This is his story from the beginning. The reason that we know that is it shows up in this the story or this, the version of the Jesus story told to us by the apostle John. One of the four gospel texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the first four books of the New Testament. John was a, basically a memoir written by a guy who had spent time with Jesus, who was one of his closest disciples and closest friends, who um, probably wrote his version of the Jesus story later in life after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already in circulation. There was no Bible yet. He's not like, I'm just going to sit down and add to the Bible because you know what it needs? Stuff from me. Um, those three stories were basically probably already going on. And yet the, 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 the feeling is that he got to an age where people within his church community or his community said, hey, you had a unique perspective on Jesus being so close to him would you consider, and you're getting a little old in age, would you consider writing these things down so that your story doesn't die with you? And so he writes a letter uh, or a, a memoir again, probably more like a memoir, about his life and time uh, with Jesus. And eventually the early church would keep that letter, make copies of that letter, and include it as kind of essential reading material for 
the church. And at some point in about 400 AD, the church then said, this is now should be included in the canon of what it, what would become Holy scripture. But in this case, um, it's really just John's story and his perspective. And about midway through his, uh, his story, his memoir, um, he writes about Jesus heading to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and the timeline is such um, that he's about to, he knows this is towards the end, right? Um, it moves very, very fast. And then it kind of like his whole story about who Jesus was moves very, very fast. And then it slows, starts slowing down right about here. Um, they go through three years of public ministry in about 13 chapters. And then the rest of it is like, like extended out. This is the start of that piece. He spends a, a final supper or the last supper with his disciples, breaking bread uh, and talking about communion and, and identifying it with Passover. We talked about that in the last series. Um, and then he begins to kind of have real intimate, honest conversations with the disciples, speaking in terms that are um, a little bit ambiguous to them that they have to draw like clarifying questions to. He's trying to have them understand. And, and John's remembering this. I remember how dumb we were sitting there and Jesus speaking clearly to us about what's about to happen and us thinking, this is a Passover like any other. This is a meal like any other. This is just Jesus being Jesus. I can't wait till next month when we get to go to Galilee or something like that, right? So um, he's, he's having this conversation with them. And at one point he breaks these news, this terrible news to them. I'm about to leave you. Like I'm, I, uh, that my time with you is about to be up. And this is a scary spot for these disciples because um, they are operating in a Roman occupied territory. They are, uh, they have enemies both within their religion, the Jewish religious system has sees them as a challenge. And then obviously the Romans kind of are like, keep paying taxes, but you know, don't, don't try and draw allegiances away from the empire. And, and Jesus is kind of doing both of those things. Um, and, uh, so he's there and he says, I'm about to leave you. And the disciples are for sure worried because if the crowds go away, if Jesus leaves, then the crowds go away. If the crowds go away, then they are now susceptible to arrest or, uh, you know, punishment or just really what do we do with our life now? Like we left our fishing industry. Like this is it that we kind of pushed all of our chips into one basket. And if you leave, then what does that mean for us? And so Jesus has these words uh, for them in chapter 14, verse one, these, by the way, these, uh, the, these verses, the section of verses, I should say, are on the uh, notes page. If you go to eastlaketricities.com slash notes, or if you're in the app, you should just be able to scroll down and be able to see all of these to be able to follow along if you'd like to. It says this, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry, guys. This is fine. I, just, I know I just broke the news to you that I'm leaving, but that's, that's it, you should be fine, right? This is like the person who comes in, uh, who's the business owner. You work for like a small business and the business owner goes, hey, just wanted you to know I sold the business uh, and my wife and I are super, super rich and uh, the new people are coming in. They're going to start on Monday. You'll probably be fine though, right? Like this is, this is not great news for them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't you believe in God? Believe also in me. Or you believing, some of them say, you believe in God, trust also in me, trust in, if you trust there, then identify that trust uh, with me as well. And this is significant. Like I, I, I jumped through this fast, but, but up to this point, you know, Jesus has uh, broken the bread with him. He's done this sort of uh, identification with Passover being like, what I'm about to do is kind of supersede this Passover. And that was kind of probably like, Ooh, Jesus, that's kind of touchy. And then he does this thing where if you believe in God, you should like equate that sort of thing with me. You should then identify, I I'm trying to provide you with, you don't need to wonder any longer what God is like. He's been with you. I've been with you this entire time. Look to me, which is a really 
big statement. Like, hopefully you understand that when you show up at Eastlake on a Sunday, I'm just telling you my personal perspective on what the way of Jesus would look like based on kind of my understanding of scripture. At no point should I ever say, and will I ever say, just trust me. I'm basically, we'll we'll take this, we're going to go off the books and we're going to go Brent's perspective and Brent's truth. Like there is, there is none of that. Or I have opinions, but it's just simply opinions and I have no connection to the father in that way, right? And if I ever said that, you should leave, right? So they don't leave. This is significant, but uh, that's the, 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 the temperature of the room or the tenor of the room at this point. And then he goes on and there's, um, there's a lot of different ways that Bible translators have tried to communicate the tenor of this next text and not just Bible translators, but like Christian bands too, specifically Audio Adrenaline. If you grow up uh, in, in the youth group in like the early nineties, uh, like myself, there was a song that, that kind of dealt with this next verse. And the song goes like this. It's a big, big house, with lots and lots of rooms. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. And by the way, if you've known this song, you're singing it right now as you read this. It's a big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. Yeah, it's my father's house. Audio Adrenaline, circa, I figured 1995. That's just off the top of my head. I could be off by like five years or so, um, but have fun on Spotify this week exploring this song. Um, but anyways, the, that, that song comes from this next verse, the context for it. John 14, chapter two, after he says, don't let your heart be troubled, trust in God. You trust in God, trust in me too. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to go there to prepare a place for you? And then he jumps down in, in a couple of verses later and he says, you know, the, to, you know the way to the place where I am going. And then he just stops and, and and it doesn't say how long this pause is there, but like there's clearly an uh, evidence of like an awkwardness of, have you ever been somewhere where somebody goes, well, everybody knows, like you went to a class and then the teacher was like, now we all clearly know the answer to this question, right? And, and everybody in the room's like, should we? I don't know it. <laughs> but no, I don't want to be the idiot that doesn't know it or raises my hand. It's always nice to have that friend who's willing to be the idiot. Like, hey, I don't know it, right? Those are good friends to have. Thank you, Carl. Um, anyways, uh, that shows up in this way. Thomas blurted it out and I added blurted it out. That's just me. That's Brent translation, just so you know. Tom, you'll see a couple of those show up in a little way. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You keep talking like you're going to leave, which is kind of weird for us. And then you're talking about this place that you're going and, uh, and you know where I'm going, but we just, we genuinely, we don't like, and I'm looking around the room going, I don't think I'm the only one. I may be the only one who's saying it, but I'm definitely not the only one who thinks it. And Jesus makes a statement in response to this question or this clarifying question um, that has been uh, a statement that you're probably familiar with. It's probably been ripped out of context from from this. And so I wanted to set this up so that you hear what he's saying with all of this because this next statement has been used as kind of a a club to sort of exclude people or um, we think of it in terms of here's who's in and here's who's out. Um, and um, the, in terms of comparative religions, in terms of, you know, here's, um, you've got all different roads that lead to the same mountain, and that mountain is God, but you can get there via Buddhism, you can get there via Islam, you can get there via Christianity or, or Judaism or Jewishness or whatever. There's all kinds of, of avenues with this, and this feels like a very exclusive claim because what Jesus says next is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What he's trying to communicate in this point is that that thing that you think is out there, because we all probably have felt that feeling, even if you're not religious, you've kind of gone through life going, 
Listen, I don't buy into organized religion. It feels like a money grab to way too much degree. Um, And I don't like the pseudo community where it's just basically shaming and like, I don't know, just another political organization or whatever. Um, But I can't help but go out into nature, look up in the night sky and go, gosh, this doesn't feel like an accident. Gosh, it feels like there's something behind this. Or... The, or when we watch something or hear something or, or read something about a story about a person who acted in, in self-sacrifice or just there's stories that like, like just twinge something in our hearts, like our emotion, our conscience. And then we think I'm operating out of some sort of a sense of rightness of what's, what's right and what's not right and what's good and what's not good. And I know I grew up in a home that kind of taught me a little bit of that, but like, I just think it's deeper than that. Cause I don't think that my mom and dad knew everything. And so I think that there's, there's something inside of me that kind of directs me towards something that's like, and that, that whatever that thing is that I'm trying to live up to, and I'm trying to be good enough for that, that whatever God, that exists and, and you've prayed even God if you exist and you know do something for me or whatever here's what he's trying to say in this he's answering that question he's trying to say in this moment to these disciples you no longer need to worry about where you stand with God because God is literally standing before you this is not a statement of exclusion this is a statement of what it means to be in like you already have you already know what it takes to be in. You don't have to figure anything out anymore. The Old Testament is filled with all kinds of sacrificial systems of people who both within the Jewish religion and the Hebrew religion and outside of it, trying to make sacrifices, all of these different gods to appease whatever may exist out there. We're not sure why he's angry. So we'll kill this and we'll do this and we'll spread the blood of this over here. And we'll make all of these sacrifices, even some of them to the point of child sacrifices to try and appease whatever God so that rain will come, so that fertility will happen within our community. So that resources will show up or whatever. We wonder, we wonder, we wonder, we wonder. And he's like, you don't need to wonder anymore. Let me offer you a little bit of terra firma in this way. You are looking at the greatest amount of truth about who or what is out there than you'll ever be able to comprehend in this lifetime. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And I know that that sounds like very exclusionary, but what I'm try- I think he's trying to say is everybody gets in the same way through an understanding of what Jesus stood for and who he was. This is the statement of equality not exclusion. This is not if you're rich, then you get to you know, do it one way or, or those who are blessed in this way get to have ex, you know, a certain level of access if you were a certain pedigree or cultural pedigree or whatever. It's all the same. It shows up in this very equal way. Now, it's interesting um, because as it goes on in just a second, we're going to jump back into this. We're going to take a side story for, for one minute. Um, there's uh, a part of this that I think like, how do we believe this story actually happened? And how do we believe that any of this is true? This is just an old man named John writing down his memory, but we all been around old men in their memories, right? Before. Um, how do we know that this isn't him kind of making this story up in this way? There's a thing called textual criticism. Uh, and I included a link to this, by the way, at the Wikipedia page of textual criticism, because it's like this whole school of how things work. And there's certain authors that really focus on textual criticism. And it's not limited to biblical literature. It's really any ancient literature. How do we know that this is the actual original text that we have? Or did Homer's Odyssey kind of have different evolutions uh, as it is presented to us? 
are we reading what Homer wrote down or uh, are we reading uh, like evol- evol- uh, you know, evolved versions of it? And as it comes with scripture, the same thing applies. And scripture is a book of ancient literature. And so it is heavily uh, um, looked at in terms of literary criticism. How do we know that, how do we know it was actually written down? Because things that are written down have extraordinary weight to them, especially in the ancient world. Because for them, the resources to be able to put something in print were significant. Today, you can type almost anything on a computer and print it to your printer and it's there, but like it's not going to be around forever probably. It is, there's a big hurdle to get something published. Like if you're a published author, that's a big deal. Um, uh, And as big of a deal as that feels in today's world, imagine if, um, imagine in a world where literally the the physical resources of pen and parchment, or they didn't have pens, ink and parchment uh, would have been a substantial, not to mention the education level, the, the, uh, the opportunity to get something written down in literary format is increasingly high, way higher than what it would be anything uh, for today. So um, there is a sense of uh, verifiability in the fact of um, if we have these documents and, and the number of documents that show up uh, from the Old Testament or New Testament specifically, uh, that kind of verifies for us. We think this is kind of legit. There's just so many copies and as, as expensive as it would be to have all of these, we just think it like makes it a little bit more true or makes it more believable. And within textual criticism is a subcategory called the criterion of embarrassment, which basically even works out for today. Um, it's the idea that any account that would be embarrassing to the author is probably presumed to be more true than not. When you tell stories and you include embarrassing details about yourself, you and I are more uh, adept at believing those two things to be true because we have this innate ability to speak well of ourselves and to kind of, if we're going to fudge things, it's going to be to our profit, right? We're going to tell a story and if we include something embarrassing about how we failed our first driver's test, we don't go, that doesn't sound right. That sounds more right than you saying, I've passed every test I've ever taken and I'm probably immune to COVID and all of these different things. That doesn't feel true. <laughs> you know what I mean? To, to, to say something that's embarrassing actually endears us to this. And that is what we see in this New Testament. These disciples, John writing these things down about embarrassing moments for these disciples. Thomas being the one who finally blurts out, hey, I don't know where you're going. I, I don't think I'm the only one. Peter uh, following through on Jesus' prediction that he would deny himself or deny Jesus knowing Jesus three times. And that's included. That feels legit because if it wasn't legit, it feels like a weird addition to have in there. So this next phrase shows up in in a significant way. So John chapter 14, verse eight, Jesus has just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the father except through me. And then Philip dumbly said, and I added dumbly, that's me again, but dumbly said, Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough for us. It's almost like he just discredited everything that Jesus ever said. That's really good, Jesus. Now, how about you just show us the Father and that's enough? To which Jesus rightly responds, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anybody who's seen me has seen the Father. Let me make this very, very clear to you. That's exactly what I've been talking about, man. If you want to know what that God that exists out there that you think might exist, you don't need to look any further than me. I am the frame of reference point. I am the thing that which you can go off of. What do we know what God is like? The best picture that we have of God is the 
person than the teaching of Jesus. Well, what about the God of the Old Testament? I, I get it. That's a, a level of understanding for them. That feels like a different God than the New Testament God. That's why we have this New Testament, to show us that, listen, this was a cultural thing for them. They had this mind, this grid of understanding. They really believed that we were supposed to like kill all these people and then move into this. And this is what God's plan is for me, right? And this is all cleared up in this, in this perspective of who Jesus was going. Listen, we've had a lot of ways that people have understood what God is like. Let me show you the clearest picture possible because we've kind of seen through a glass dimly lit, as Paul would say. We've kind of seen bits and pieces here and there about what God is like and what he looks like and what he wants from us. And with this person of Jesus, the claim of Christianity, whether you believe it or not, that's fine, I don't care, but the claim of Christianity is we don't have to look anywhere else but what Jesus would have to say. And we would do well to spend time, perhaps on a weekly basis, gathering together for a moment, refocusing our energy on what it would look like for me personally to live in the way of Jesus and the life that I live with the kids that I parent, with the school that I attend, with the job that I do, whatever. What would it look like to follow Jesus in this moment and in this circumstance? That is the point of it. That's what he's trying to do. Now he doesn't stop there because he knew some of us might need a little bit more. Believe me, verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. And Jesus here is giving us a little bit of a bone. He's throwing a little bit of a caveat. Believe me. And if you don't even believe me, for, that, for him, he would say, look at all of these things that we've done. Look at these miracles that we've performed. Look at all of these stories that we have. Look at all of these this wisdom texts. Look at the, the way that the people have been drawn towards this and their lives have been changed. And for us, looking at this a couple thousand years later, the benefit that we have is I think some of this evidence that is of the works themselves is this idea of this church who survives the Roman Empire, this church that in spite of all of the persecution, in spite of the thousands of years of existence, doesn't seem to go away. I mean, how do you explain all of this? Uh, the best way to explain the explosion of the church is that we saw these people who uh, saw him alive and when they fixed their eyes on Jesus, they never took their eyes off of him and they begin to do things that would change the world. Like one of the biggest, why do you believe this is all true? I'm just like the survivability of Christianity, the fact that we still have this, the fact that around the world, literally billions of people gather together in churches to try and make sense of what it would mean to be religious and moral and have our religion shape our behavior about what we think and what we believe and how we behave and what we hope for in life. I, I think that that speaks just incredible volumes uh, for why Jesus is worth investing our attention and our time into. Jesus' point is if you look past me, stop short of me, take your eyes off of me, you may miss the Father. And the worst thing, I'd say this every Easter, and I know we had a weird Easter, so it didn't count this year, but I mean, counted, but whatever. The worst thing possible happened to the best person possible. So the question is, what do you do with this? Is this what we believe? Is this enough of a reference point for us? Has Christianity for you been something that we do because, you know, the community, it's fun to be a part of a church community and I like that you watch my kids for an hour and the free coffee's nice um, or, or whatever. Um, or or what, what, is, what is Christianity? Is it, is it I want to be a better person? 
I, I want to uh, make better choices. I want to beat this addiction. I want to uh, feel better about myself. I, I want to meet somebody. I want to, uh, all of these things are, are fine, but they're kind of periphery in terms of the point of Christianity is not looking past Jesus, not stopping short of him and not taking his, our eyes off of him and having him like begin to then shape how we live this out. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter or the pioneer of our faith, the beginning and of our story. The point of the through the looking glass is this idea that God sent Jesus to stand with us so we would never have to wonder where we stood with him. And that is the one thing we do not have to wonder about. Now, next week, we will conclude this series. But in the meantime, may we be the type of people who look no further than Jesus, who keep that center and, and as a part of us. And if we've walked away for anything other than Jesus, may we challenge ourselves to ask the question, perhaps have I walked away needlessly? Perhaps have I missed the point? Perhaps have I put too much weight in internal or external politics or hurt feelings or whatever, or, or disappointment in terms of what I thought or, uh, or, or I, I watched, I had so much tied into this pastor who had this moral failure and now I just, my whole faith is shaken. Like that, those are unfortunate circumstances for sure. And all of that, can, I can understand why you did. But the author of Hebrews would say, those are all periphery things, man. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Would you guide us into that truth? Would you give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name? Amen.